Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, it's Vish. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. If you'd like to support the show financially by making a monthly flexible donation to keep this podcast going, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Lee Kern is a talented comedy writer, filmmaker, and music fan based in London, England. With a rich history as a satirist whose work is akin to very hilarious social science studies, Kern has worked on two Sasha Baron Cohen projects, the uproarious 2018 television series Who is America, and as a screenwriter and associate producer for the feature-length Borat subsequent movie film, which begins streaming on Amazon Prime on October 23rd, 2020. Lee and I connected recently for a conversation about his work in the realms of comedy and pranksterism, celebrity pretense, delusions of grandeur, and looking angry evil in the face. Loving Tom Green, Nirvana, Pavement, and David Berman's Silver Jews, future plans, and more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Andy Schaff. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 574th episode of Creative Control, featuring the funny and daring Lee Kern with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Lee. How's it going? Very, very average, thank you. Average? Um, Oh, no. Yeah. No, no. Average is good these days. You know, in the world of crap, if you can be average, you're you're excellent. That's that's likely true. That is likely true. First of all, where in the world are you? I'm in uh, northwest London, UK. Now, is that where you're from? Yeah. So I've grown up in a a sort of little town, town, a suburb called Edgware. Pretty much lived in my old life. I've been to other places, but I generally I quite like it around here. It's um, it's like a, it is a shithole, but <laughs> but 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 where isn't a shithole these days, you know? And so if you're going to live in a shithole, you may as well have one where you kind of know your way around the shit, and um, it's a bit more familiar. So yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, average and I'm happy. You're average and you're happy. Uh, on the whole, from your perspective. How are things going uh, there in England as they may relate to the way things are going uh, around the world? I'm calling you from Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. Uh, we have a pandemic here. There's a, I don't know if you have the pandemic. I'm pretty sure you do. There's social yeah. unrest. There's lots of issues in the world. Uh, from your vantage point in London, how are things going in, in that regard? I mean, for me, for me personally, I don't, I don't mind it. Like, cause 
I don't really like the things I like in life. I just like pottering about or maybe going out on my bike. So that hasn't really changed much. And also I don't have to sort of get on the tube into town for meetings anymore. So I don't mind doing that. It saves a lot mm. of time. But in terms of the general vibe, I think it's probably pretty much like everywhere where it's just a massively divided society where no one, we've got no shared traction on what is reality or truth anymore. And, you know, you have the rise of conspiracism dovetailed with the rise of people who are bombarded with such opposing views that they just give up and they don't know what to believe and they lose faith in society. And so we've got a situation now with all the COVID stuff. Like, in, you know, British people are, you know, we're belligerent and leery and sort of people don't care. So you know, no one's really wearing their masks or following the rules properly you know you've got um just people congregating i just think people have just had enough even if they sort of um accept the uh the sensible medical narrative understanding that there's a virus and there isn't a vaccine yet yeah they kind of don't care anymore people there's this attitude i want to you know who cares i mean without being boring just talking about covid and stuff you know it's just general just the logic links people make. So if you're either, if you're, let's put aside the conspiracy theorists who, who do make ground getting their narratives entering the ether. And even if they make people think, oh, well, you know, maybe better be cautious. What if the conspiracy theorists are right? The conspiracy theorists have kind of done their job in casting doubt in, um, people's minds and so, you know, they've taken them out of the game. Yeah. People like, people have kind of given up on, believing in anything uh it seems like believing that uh they should wear the mask that they need to follow the protocols uh they've gone sort of maybe i don't know if you were suggesting this but it seems like we've all gone past the point of accepting uh that this is happening to a weird uh uh you know mass destructive denial where you know i don't care about anybody else i just want to go to the pub i just want to do this i don't care because uh, it doesn't seem and, like and that and yeah, no, totally. And I think people are assisted by really bad, really flawed pieces of logic. So, for example, there might be a big narrative saying, well, look, more more people will die of uh, cancer, you know, than this COVID. So why aren't we just focusing on sorting that out? But the logic doesn't work because a cancer, I couldn't sit in a room with a cancer patient and catch cancer from them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just from sharing the space. Yeah. You know, you don't, cancer is not a, a virus that's transmitted like that. So the, whereas COVID is, and there isn't a vaccine yet. So it doesn't, do you know what I mean? It doesn't work in comparison. No. Or you'll just have the big, the big narrative of people saying, oh, well, it's only survival rates, 99%. That's great. One in a hundred is pretty significant. And if you're like a population of 60 million, like 1%, that's a big number of people. And it feels like a pretty brutal or ignorant sort of, you just haven't conceptualized that attitude to think, oh, well, fuck it. You know, one, 1% is a huge fucking amount of people to die. Well, okay. You know? So this is why I, one of the reasons I wanted your perspective on this is, and I, I need you to sort of vocationally identify yourself here. You're a comedian. I know you as a comedy writer. Are you, yeah. would you say, and I, I think, and forgive me if this is wrong, Something of a, uh, a satirist, something of a prankster, even. Would you agree with these distinctions? No, not necessarily. No, I wouldn't. Not in a hostile way. I don't disagree with you and hate you now. Um, do you li- do you hate of, me a little? Just a little bit? No, not at all. Not at okay, all. Because okay, okay. it's really so. It's what I'm about to say now will sound really kind of um, misanthropic and and callous, but it's not. It's really optimistic and joyful. I couldn't give a fuck about um, my career or art or culture like anymore. I used to, but now like, I literally don't care. I literally just want to make a living. And so I will, whatever opportunity, if I, if that's whatever I can do to make my living, I'll just follow where the money is now. And I, that doesn't mean I'm a sellout. I make stuff with integrity and dignity and, um, and pride and quality. But, it just so happens that there have been opportunities for me to make a living doing some of this pranky kind of stuff or writing some things for Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. And so that's what I've done. 
but in your, but in your own work, don't you do a bit of that? Like I was watching some clips of you uh, in some of your work, and uh, there's the thing where you've tried to convince celebrities they've been cloned. Uh, there's like yeah. paparazzi pranks. It feels like you have a little bit of that within you. I understand what you're saying. Oh, you've got a little I've got bit it within me. Yeah, I've got it within me. Like it's a fun, easy comedic medium to work in it's very i find it very easy to write those sort of things to conceive like events and silly happenings right where just stupid dramas manifest and um so it's very easy but it came about my career arc it wasn't always in comedy even though comedy is always what i wanted to do and i've like my soul feels you know inclined towards comedy but the first it's basically i sent something there's a channel in the uk called channel four and i just sent some stuff i'd written to a guy who worked at years ago when i was about 19 or something and he liked it and but he didn't want to do anything with it but i sort of hustled a meeting out of it so i went in and met him and during the course of the conversation i just mentioned um Oh, it turned out he was from the same town as me, Edgware. And I mentioned how there was the guy who used to work in, walk around in Edgware wearing only his underpants going through bins. There was like the crazy underpants man. Okay. And, and there were all these urban myths and legends about him. And I just said, oh, I've always wanted to make a documentary about him. And then he just put me in touch there and then with someone who worked in the documentary department. And they literally, they gave me a thousand pounds there and then to go and make a little doc. And so I bought myself a little camera and I literally just made this self-funded, lo-fi, rough and ready documentary. And so my entry into you know, show business came via documentary. They were the first people that gave me a space to sort of explore my voice, cut my teeth. So I made these kind of homespun, ramshackle, lo-fi documentaries with a comedic edge, but also a kind of sort of sort of simmering, I don't know, sentimental quality as well hmm. and but then bit by bit you know i'd try and veer towards doing comedy stuff so i ended up doing some voice for a cartoon called um modern toss and then how i got into doing pranky stuff i'd never grown up wanting to do prank i always wanted to do scripted stuff which is what i i am doing now i can talk about that later but during when prince william um got engaged to a uh, kate Middleton and they were going to get married. There was going to be the big royal wedding and there was kind of royal wedding fever. And I just pitched an idea to the channel saying I could do this a prank show where I pose as someone who works for the for Buckingham Palace and that I'm organising the wedding and we can get these celebs down and just sort of fuck with them a bit, do see, see what absurd things they'll do <laughs> just in order to be part of the royal wedding. So we literally had... I mean, you know, just as an example, like some celebs believing that they were going to help introduce the courses of the banquet of the mill, and so we had like, but but they we had one of them like dressing up as a prawn cocktail salad, <laughs> dressing up as, as this big prawn, <laughs> thinking that is and recording an announcement to the heads of state and you know royalty, just saying, "Oh, ladies and gentlemen, heads of states, governments, princes, um, please welcome your starter." prawn cocktail and they'd be saying this whilst looking like this little prawn on a bed of lettuce and um so it was quite um you know so people yeah but people would buy into it because they were so desperate to be part of the um proceedings like we had some of them they came in and they were trained up thinking they'll be trained up in how to act around royalty and they literally signed some of them signed a a disclaimer saying that they were happy to die and they would sacrifice their life in order to kind of take a bullet for the queen if anything went down and they signed it and one of them signed it whilst being a bit weepy because you felt the gravitas of it of like laying down her life and the fear of it and it's like well don't sign it don't give your life for this um <laughs> do you know what i mean some some old lady with a crown what's wrong with you you know so um, so this is where i'm coming from you have a perspective on human behavior and psychology as a comedian uh, and in your experience with uh, celebrities and other people that I wonder if that sort of mentally prepares you for the way people are behaving right now during a pandemic. Like you might, 
Do you know what I, you know what I mean? Like you might you 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 might I would figure you're not surprised by the idiocy that we are we are seeing as a result of this crisis. Is that fair? No, but but just generally, you know, that's the story of you know humanity. We, like we've got these brains that is the like it's this most powerful organ we have, and it, and it and it enables us to achieve like like transcendent incredible things but it can so easily be um turned against us and used against us i mean you know this isn't a revelation you know it's um people can be made to believe anything i I often found when doing the pranks that actually some of the most bizarrely some of the people who were most um resistant to being tricked were actually some of the more stupid people now, I'm not saying it's an overall rule, but I, anecdotally, I found some people who are just more not that bright. You tell them something absurd, like I'd say, oh, you've been cloned, right? We've made a clone of you. Do you yeah. want to feed it? Do you want to feed it some soup? Right? <laughs> right. People who are more stupid might be more inclined to just immediately reject it and go, uh, whatever, uh, whatever. And, you know, just sort of just not buy it. But a more strangely, like a more intelligent, inquisitive mind looks the brain looks for patterns. It looks to connect dots. It looks to rationalize and reason and make sense of the world. And so if I said to you, oh, yeah, we've made a clone of you. Um, we got some of your DNA when you gave a medical test on a TV show. You're given these bits of information. They're trying to piece it together and think, oh, hang on. How did they get uh, my DNA? How did they get a clone of me? Is that possible? <laughs> and so they start filling in they start weaving the tapestry themselves and fill it, making the logic patches themselves. So, but yeah, people can be like, haven't done a show. Look, so, so I'm, you know, obviously I'm Jewish and obviously, you know, with the, like with the Holocaust thing, you like, you know, it's a, it's a human knowledge now that you can get people to do anything, horrific things and, and believe that they're virtuous whilst doing it, you know, like the most awful crimes, generally done by people think that they're doing a good thing do you know what i mean that someone who thinks that like someone committing a genocide can't really do it thinking fucking hell this is a bit out of order isn't it what a fucking bastard i am yeah do you know what i mean they're going to be doing it thinking oh i'm doing this is good for society maybe it's a bit ugly but but overall it's moral because it's for the benefit of um my society and civilization so people are like capable of awful things and so then when I got immersed in the nitty gritty, let's say convincing people they've been cloned, yeah, it just became apparent to me that you, people can believe anything. And and imagine like I'm managing to get someone to believe they've been cloned and, and meet what they think is a clone themselves. And you'll manage to get them to believe that just in an, an hour of their company. I mean, you're, so imagine, you're, you're, you're talking just about... Just to find a point, yeah. find a point and say, imagine like, you can achieve these things within just an hour of someone's company. Yeah. Imagine all of us, you, me, everyone, the layers and layers and sediment of information and narratives we can be fed for our entire lifetime, how much, you know what I mean? We're not as autonomous and free thinking as we'd like to believe. It's like, do you see what I'm getting at? If you want Absolutely. To do it now, no, I, yeah. I, I do. And, and I think of the clips of, of yours that I've seen. And I think, as you know, I'm a, I was a huge fan of Who is America? I just thought that was a stunning uh, series. And it was it wasn't really... On the one hand, I'm not surprised by human nature uh, because I try to pay attention to human nature and figure it out as much as I can. It's one of the reasons I do this show is I talk to people and I try to figure these things out. But what we're seeing when comedians and producers like yourself make these things are kind of the the finest, the highlights of probably a couple of days of trying to get at that stuff. Are you ever in a position where the jig is up? And there's like the person realizes what you're doing that they've been made a fool of. And then they get so angry that you're in some physical peril or there's going to be an argument. How often does that occur in your line of work where you're. I can, I can talk about like some, I had my own show I had on Channel 4 called uh, Lee Kern's Celebrity Bedlam. Yeah. So that's why I did High Sounds. And um, I remember there was, a, <laughs> there was actually only one. I mean, we pulled off some ridiculous things that we never got rumbled, like the very last stunt we did on the show. And the, the my execs made us do it as the last stunt because no one believed we'd be able to pull it off. And that was a stunt where I was going to convince someone that I was a, an actual dog. 
and um, have them believe I was a dog and stroking my head and <laughs> kind of and 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 they said you won't do it and we fucking pulled it off like and and what uh, what I loved about that was the um the trickery to do in order to pull stuff off so in that that was um so we hired out this dog kennel for the day this dog pound for strays and what have you and in one of the uh, cages we just built a false wall at the back of it with a hole in it. So I would kneel down and stick my head through that hole. And then we put in some, uh, literally a, a sort of costume, prop costume dog snout stuck on some hairy ears and, and a bit of black around my eyes. And then put literally a, a fluffy toy dog's body beneath it. So I was like standing like a dog. And we had someone coming in thinking I was real and I'm literally licking their hand. And, um, and, um, and, but that was actually the most difficult stunt for me to do. There was, we had, there was an actress, a brilliant performer called, uh, Sophie, Sophie Black, right? Yeah. Um, so she was saying, oh yeah, and here's a dog. We're going to actually put him down tomorrow. And they were feeling sorry for me. And, um, but it was really difficult for me. I was scared to make eye contact with them because I thought if they see my eyes, I still see my human soul, you know, and the intelligence behind the eyes. And so anyway, that was the most difficult one. Anyway, my point was we convinced people crazy things. The only stunts that where we did one stunt where it was, Oh, so I did, I did, we, I took over a catwalk at London fashion week, like a proper catwalk. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I posed as a, uh, some fashion designer, some maverick. And I had this range of clothing that, the celebs believed were made out of human leather. And right. so, would, so they were these disgusting, grisly silence of the lamb style stitched together bits of flesh and skin, like horrible. It was like, um, you know, these coats with like a tit sewn onto it an ear. We had like a, like a poncho with a, with a dick and balls. Yeah. And that's pu- uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so all this horrible stuff. Now, and they people buy into it and believe it. It was only at the end when one of them, what would have happened is one of them just phoned their agent and goes, oh, yeah, it was a good film. And, yeah, I wore clothes made of human leather. One of them had, like, a penis sewn on <laughs> the back of it. And then I imagine the agent would have said, so, sorry, you did what? And then it would have been, you know what I mean? And But then I did actually, I had to hide in a cupboard. I didn't want to hide in a cupboard, but my producers made me hide in a cupboard because I think the celeb there was desperate to... Um, come and uh find me exact exact revenge of some kind yeah 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 Yeah. so you are you know when you make people look stupid uh (laughs) you're you're putting in a you're in a weird position like i've done a couple of things like this not like this of course but i've done I did a thing. I had a segment once on a, a little TV pilot I was working on. I had a segment. It was like a streeter thing called, uh, I called it nice racism. And basically okay. I got people to, I would say, hey, we're doing a thing to try to highlight, you know, how, you know, certain people are great at stuff. And so I would say like, fill in the blank. African-Americans are the best at. And then they would yeah, say yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, and then I went through, I went through all the races and they would make these crazy generalizations like, Oh, swimming. And I'd be like, what? Yeah. Oh yeah. The Chinese are the best at swimming. And so I called it nice racism because that's a nice thing to say about a race. Really. That they're really great. Yeah, exactly. So I've done a little things like that. Not many. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a lot of, I, I live vicariously through people like you and, and you know, all my comedic heroes, uh, because you've just, what you've said, that thing you did, you know, that stuff's interesting. Like, um, just you know it's a social study and experiment exactly like attitudes and things it remind, I, so there's an idea i've never done and like i once did an idea where you get a focus group and there's all people just in the same room and then they're left with different envelopes of different tasks to do mm-hmm. and i just thought when one of the tasks would be they open it up and there's just all these different photos there's a different photo of different people of different ethnicities you don't you know of a black person yeah uh, an indian person a white person trying all these different faces and and the challenge and the um the task would simply just say, put these photos in order, and that's all it would say. <laughs> and then and then you would just watch the, the conversation of where they steer it, how they try and interpret what that means and what they do. I think you know that would be interesting. Well, I, um, I like the social studies aspect of this kind of comedy because you really do learn a lot about people. But is there? I didn't have this with my thing, but I in retrospect. 
I wondered, should I feel bad about this? Should I feel bad about making these people, you know, bringing out this true self of theirs on camera? Because we were filmed all of it. And, and I don't think it's 100% true. Like, so, like, if I'm being, it's not 100% true self, because obviously, you know, we're constructing, people are funneled, like when I make my that's show, true. You're obviously you're leading them into a certain territory and area. Yeah. Um, it depends. I mean, your one doesn't sound particularly, it's not particularly like, venomous and you, you you know you're sufficiently giving them rope to hang themselves yeah that that's the, that was the do. whole premise yeah it was like a streeter thing it was strangers like on toronto streets you know i would go and i they'd see a guy with a microphone and a camera and they had to i say i just have a couple of questions and they would answer them and yes yes it wasn't venomous per se it wasn't meant to make them look bad it was meant to be like this is how people think maybe well, so, for me what was difficult is i you know, I'm just being perfectly honest. Like I, when I made this show, so I'm doing this stuff, imagine for a year and filming, doing these things. And yeah, I'll just be perfectly honest because it, you quickly dehumanize what well, I did. And I'm sure everyone else does quickly dehumanize the subjects yes. I'm doing the stuff on because I've, I've got all this pressure that I need to get material today to make this show. There's this whole team here. There's thousands of pounds being spent on this. I need to make this work. Um, I need to make a good show. And so it literally, I'll be honest, it'd be as callous as, all right, what dick are we filming with today? What are we doing with them? And you literally, so when you, I first started doing it, it was horrible because I, like the first shoot, I had all the symptoms of being a liar. You know, you're looking into someone's eyes, you feel your heart rising. Yeah, you yeah. feel you're anxious and, and sweaty and you feel like they can see into your soul and like, you know, almost, you know, like in Crime and Punishment where he's walking around with this secret, you feel like they can see into you. But over time, and this this is an obvious, it's obviously a negative thing. Over time, you, like you kind of lose that, and you just like I'd spend a year. So I haven't done any prank stuff myself since. Yeah, because I don't really, I don't really, genuinely, I don't fancy spending a year of my life looking into people's eyes and lying That's and a, being really and being really good at it. Right, but but let me put it to you this way: like you talked um, about some of the celebrities you've duped, and some of the other kinds of people you've duped, and on some level. Uh, those people aren't uh, pure evil. They're just maybe vapid and silly and celebrity in general. I mean, I do feel like overarchingly, I like when people make fun of celebrities for because if they're just celebrities for the sake of being celebrities and aren't particularly talented or what have you, or, you know, that's interesting and funny and playful on some level. But you have had numerous experiences, I'm sure, where you're actually staring and lying into the face of pure evil, particularly with some of the other stuff you've done with Sasha Baron Cohen and elsewhere. How does that work? Like when you're like, yes, we got this fucker. Like, I don't like these people. I'm sure there's part of you, like these anti-Semites, these racists. Is that satisfying on some level more so than maybe the celebrity duping and the other regular people duping? Well, I, two things. One, I can't, I can't massively talk about the process of the Sasha stuff. Sure. Talk about that. Sure. Yeah. But in terms of what is just in the public domain, like the content, you know, your audience may have seen or can see. For example, there was a, a stump with a guy called uh, Jason Spencer, who was some, some, I think, an Alabama kind of lawmaker or something in America. Yeah. And um, we had, um, there was a stump with a character called Iran Murad, who was this sort of ex-Mossad special forces anti-terrorist training. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you had, yeah, you had this guy literally. So I came up with this idea where you'd convince this guy that the way to defeat ISIS is not with guns. And you tell them that what is the biggest fear of a jihadist terrorist? It's, um, it's, um, it's being seen as being gay because if they're gay, they won't go to heaven. Right. And so the way to strike fear into the eyes of a terrorist running at you with a gun is to pull your trousers down and get your ass out and run at them with your bare buttocks, trying to touch them. Because if you um, touch them with your buttocks, that mean in their heads, they'll think, Oh, I'm gay. Now I'm not going to go to heaven. And so they'll run away and drop their weapon. Now, and so we had this guy chasing around, literally got his ass out, chasing around um, Iran Murad, trying to touch him with his bum, shouting, USA, USA, motherfucker, trying to touch him with his bare bum. And what makes me laugh about it, because it's like putting, for me, it's always, it's like putting on a temporary mind patch or something. Because if, if you, if I was at ISIS and you started running at me with your bare bum, 
I'd just shoot you. You know what I mean? And it's like, it never occurred in this guy's head that he, that he thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to run at a man with a fucking AK-47 in my bare bum, and he's going to run away at, or drop his gun. He'd just shoot you. You know what I mean? But yeah. um, So in the heat of the moment, people go for so. But, it, uh, yeah, yes, look, on, of course, like, um, you know, you could argue there's a social good in exposing people. Like, he was massively like racist as well yeah in the show yeah so that there is a value there and if someone's got a a a political job yeah there's a, a public interest in knowing um the inner the inner beliefs of a person yeah. do you know what i mean yeah that, that that seems valid fair enough i think um you know next time i make one of these shows if i ever do make my own one i think i would though quite like to make sure there's a narrative within it saying look we're not we might be laughing at people, but none of us are immune. We're all, we're all manipulated, easily manipulated. Yeah. We can all be made to do shit because this is like, it's just ingrained evolutionary stuff that can make this happen to any of us. Any of us could do evil things, you know, and that's why it's important to be vigilant and maybe own it a bit that um, we've all got like, you know, there's a, you know, when you look at all the hyper attempt to present oneself as the most like in the most extremities of the uber wokeness where it's so extreme and it becomes like this pure puritan sort of test and it's impossible do you know what i mean we're all vulnerable well flawed but the other the other thing i will say is in your work what i do see also is a is a satire or criticism of the media because you've got cameras and microphones and these things to some people are temptresses Oh, I would love to be. I don't care what you're asking me to do or say. You've got a camera. This is going to be on TV or the internet. Wow. Yeah. So there's that chasing of celebrity. I think that's also and and the way the media is complicit in giving mm-hmm. platforms to people like this. I feel like that's a huge part of your work as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, of course. Like people, you know. Like, I, like, I'll be frank. I've got nothing to hide. Like when I make my show, people will do it for a combination of reasons. They're doing it for their public profile. They're doing it to be on TV. Some people might get a small fee because they think they're taking part in a TV show. I mean, they are. It's just not the TV show that they thought it was. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And they're doing all that. But one thing I just want to say as well, and actually, it's give me a chance to talk about one of your fellow Canadians, but Tom Green. Yes. So, you know, we always hear this big debate, oh, punching up is okay, but you can't punch down and all the rest of it. Now, I think, you know, there's some merits to that, but I don't actually, A, I don't think there's any rule, this is what you have to do in comedy, that's what you can't do, because that's just bollocks, you know, without sounding like a, you know, childish hippie, you know, there, there should be no rules. And it's all about the tone and the intent. So someone like Tom Green... He's just doing ordinary people on the street, yeah. old people. Yeah. Sometimes it might even be a crazy homeless guy, but it's not cruel. And if any, what he's actually satirizing, I'd say, is an even bigger something, an even bigger and worthier topic of satirization than politics and politicians. It's just satirizing the nature of reality. Yeah. About just the satirizing the fact that we believe so seriously the worlds and lives we live and and take it all so seriously. And then you suddenly got this weirdo sliding on his back past someone performing Elvis whilst wearing a crash helmet. <laughs> or when you had Tom Green, I remember he always did this one, I think it was called, um, what was it called? Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And it was him walking down the streets at night and he had this rope, he was wearing this dress. He had all this smeared oh, right. on his face. Yeah, yeah. And he had a, and a rope with a load of goat heads tied to it. And he was just sort of terrorizing people. Now, what is that? Like he's doing immersive street pranks. He's not satisfied, satirized in politics. He's creating this comedic and absurdist comedic poem. Yeah. That's a, which I always saw as Tom Green at his greatest, what these absurdist visual like comedy poems that just make you almost laugh at just at life. Everything existence is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the whole punch up, punch down is quite myopic in the sense that it thinks everything always has to be political and all the rest of it, but you can satirize just existence and, and, and therefore anything's target. Mm. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I don't know if you're a fan of Tom Green or remember him. No, of course. Yeah, I am. And I was, and uh, Mm. he was a big deal here. He used to have a public access sort of TV show in Ottawa 
that would yeah. would get uh, sort of uh, spread. Or I got to see it here. I, w- I didn't live in Ottawa, but we got to see it on like the local uh, cable access sort of thing. And then obviously, yeah, he blew up, and it was it was a it was a big success story because he was so uncompromising. Um, I want to. I, I believe, like we've talked about comedy quite a bit, but I believe we have some musical connections. We have some mutual friends and mutual interests. You're a big music person. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think, like, you know, I've mentioned to you that a lot of my influences on my... It's quite weird, even though I work in comedy, my real... My actual influences are either A, kind of poetry, like writing. So I don't really watch much comedy. I used to watch a few, like, quite a few British shows. I never really watched a great deal of stand-up. But my influence on my comedy writing just comes from poetry. That's what's taught me how to write. Hmm. Um, And then musically has been... There's music I like that's been a real influence on a my philosophies in terms of how I approach like work and my career, and I guess also aesthetically and opening up in my head what are valid and worthy areas for me to sort of comedically talk about. That seems all abstract what I've said, but I'm sure <laughs> when we get down to the particulars, it it would make sense what my my airy waffle actually meant there. So. I mean, just give you an example, like, um, so this is my musical lineage. I grew up, you know, I grew up as a young kid thinking I didn't like music because I hated all the stuff that my friends in school liked, you know, when people like, like Michael Jackson or, you know, Nana Cherry or whatever was big at that time. I didn't like it. It didn't make me feel anything. And I just thought I was a freak for, oh, I just don't like music. And then obviously like a lot of kids of that age, then I sort of heard Nirvana and they were the thing that literally landed at the right time. Yeah. Most beautiful age. And it sort of transformed me. And then I got into, I mean, at the time it was off the back of grunge. So it was like Nirvana, Soundgarden and it was Smashing Pumpkins. So um, it was the, it was, I assume part of it was the sound, but part of it was the revelation that some hidden world you know, this world had been hidden from you and now it was exposed. And this is what I had. I don't know. How old were you when you heard Nirvana? I was like, I guess I would have been. I was born in 78. Yeah. So, so you're just a year behind or yeah, I'm a year younger than or older than you rather. So we were around the same age. And I remember feeling like I consumed a lot of music journalism. And yeah. that was a big thing when I discovered punk and underground music and uh, you know, things like Pavement and David Berman and and all of, you know, Fugazi and Shellac and all those things. Uh, yeah. It was that, oh, this has been hidden from me. Like this did not, they didn't talk about this in Rolling Stone and Spin and all the stuff I just had easy access to in terms of music journalism. So part of it was I felt both exhilarated to discover this stuff, but I also felt like, hey, if they're lying to me about this, what else is everyone lying to me about? So it, it created both like, a, okay, I'm going to start exploring on my own. Like it did, I, I'm proud of that and happy about that impulse, but it was also the first seeds of mistrust. Like, wait a second, so there's a whole world here. Un, yeah. It empowered and unnerved you in equal measure. Yeah, and I had the same thing with comedy at that time too. Like Letterman was a big one for me, but he and he his booking people and him seemed really keen to showcase the weird and wild and strange people that you wouldn't see anywhere else so there's this and howard stern for me was that guy as well like a little bit like just exposing you to things you just the rest of the world wouldn't tell you about so was that is that part of it for you as well just that like explosion of information if you will i just i just it was just i don't just feel so instant it just felt so instantaneous i mean it literally is you know i'm not an original it's literally as instantaneous as the opening riff just smells like teen spirit it's mm. just literally there and it's just tr- and it just feels true and yeah. authentic and it just slips right into your heart saying okay yeah this is for real it's just that unquantifiable even though like art and music is subjective there's got to be something going on where a, a, a sizable constituency of human beings collectively arrive at a conclusion saying even though this music's subjective that we like it this just feels real there's truth in this artist in what they're communicating yeah you know it's just because like i don't you know who knows if there's a science that could actually break down and understand why we see some music or paintings or art think yeah this is the real deal we can actually feel that human for real well again and i feel like this informs comedy as well like i have a real 
radar for pretense and yeah inauthentic inauthentic sort of expression and i don't uh, that's the other i think when i gravitate to the comedy of someone like yourself or the music of of david berman or someone you know who i feel is telling me something from a real place and a true place and it is it's on me psychologically to think that what you or people like other people i admire are doing is oppositional to the forces of <laughs> fakery, but there's probably some truth to that. Like, I think we we make things uh, in relation to the... Th- a little bit, anyway. We make things because they are our true expression, but we also make things in sort of reaction to stuff we don't like or think is r- not good, if that makes sense. Does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, um, I just... I mean, when I first started writing the truth is like yeah it was it's almost like you become like an extremist like it's like i i I would write feeling it's almost like my i had to write for my life do you know what i mean with all my guts and soul like it was actually it wasn't just like i had like i was writing for my life do you know what i mean almost like survival almost Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. it's like this is this is do you know what i mean and you can just maybe tell i don't know maybe it's just human desperation not in a tragic desperation but the desperate desire to communicate just to say something true you know what i mean to say this is you know i don't know who knows but you can feel it it's an ur- it's, it a, it's an urgency i would say it's an urgency like you just feel like this is an immediate and true feeling it's authentic and i need to express it as opposed to so I, I, yeah there i so there's two so let's take all the sort of more grungier bands like mud honey or or even like the punk bands like you know minor threat and and black flag yeah so they're in this in tandem with them again yeah i was sort of, i got into pavement you know, like wow is the first song i ever heard was unseen power of the picket fence oh from the no alternative uh compilation that's it. so that's how yeah. i came across pavement i didn't know because none of my friends are on it so i've heard this track and that's the one that stood out i think it had a couple of chris cornell tracks in it as well didn't you did you did you probably as a nirvana fan get that because there was the secret nirvana song on it which one maybe which one was on it uh was it sappy it might have been yeah it's a secret track on the cd and it, yeah sorry i don't have i don't i turned off my internet mostly except for us talking right now so i'm not going to look it up but it's yes, a fine. it's a secret song and i feel like they did a really cool thing by nirvana kurt was really good at this kurt was really good at being like yes i have this platform but i'm going to use it to extol the virtues he did it with the vaseline did it with daniel yeah but he's with the t-shirt he did it i know he did some uh that william burris he did some yeah yeah the, the, re- pri- the priest they called him that's right they did a, they yeah, did, they yeah. did a record so, but he was really good at like how cool is it that it was a secret like nirvana huge band and then all these young people like you and me clamoring for this cd uh, yeah. to get this Nirvana song. And re- really what I think the impulse for Kurt was beyond doing something to help, uh, you know, benefit yeah. uh, people with AIDS. But that, just think, but no, the secret tracks now, they're extinct. They've well, gone that, into extinction yeah, well, because CDs, they can't exist anymore. CDs don't so, really matter anymore. That's true. But I'm just saying, like, that was a cool thing because you got that CD because you might have heard a rumor that there was a Nirvana song on it, but then you exposed to pavement or... I think Uncle Tupelo, like Jeff Tweedy from Wilco's band, I think was on there too. Like I think that's kind of a cool thing that he did. Wait, no, it is cool. So what happened was I heard that sound, like Unseen Powered Picket Fence, and I just thought, shit, I've, this band, that I've not heard, this is fucking crazy, like what's going on in this song. Yeah. And this laconic singing style of almost someone who like, literally can't be bothered to sing, but yet is totally singing and using his voice like an instrument and then that weird collage bit at the end where it's almost like what's going on here it's like there's like an American Civil War yeah Asa Asa that's right. yeah. yeah and, and yeah. then there's like a dog barking and what the hell's going on and and so off, literally off that I went um, so I went off on a side journey away from my friends and all the music they have and I just went out and bought uh, Wowie Zowie mm-hmm. and so that was the first pavement album I ever heard and obviously the like any, like most good complex textured art i was you find that first few listens your ear you don't really understand you don't feel almost like i can't hear it yeah and it's like one of those magic eye pictures where eventually your eye grabs onto it there's some bands i've always found where because it's new your ear then focuses and, and grips it and when you suddenly get it 
And just wow, so was just like it was mind blowing for me. Was, yeah, I mean, I couldn't yeah. get any of my friends to get into it because they it was almost like they couldn't understand the idea of music that wasn't um, heavy at that point. I was you know, the same, be- same, absolutely. I was trying to get people into Silver Jews and Pavement, my friends. They do now; they like it now. But yeah. there was something about my high school punk friends that couldn't get. I would like, hey, let's watch. Uh, I taped it. Let's watch Pavement on Conan O'Brien doing a stereo, <laughs> and I'd make them all. I didn't make them, but I'm like, hey, and they'd like, all right, Vish. Like I was the. I was like a, a VHS YouTube guy. Like I basically yeah. was YouTube before there was YouTube. I would tape everything on TV yeah. and say, hey, guys, come over and watch, you know, these bands that were on. And so, yeah, for some reason, they were a hard sell at the time. Uh, but I, I, it just spoke to me. I liked everything about it. And, and also and within... Thing, go ahead. Go. No, I was just going to say within Malcolmus. I think a little bit of comedy. I think his delivery, his writing was funny. And yeah. so, and so yeah. like, I, I appreciated that too. Yeah. Um, no, like, I mean, yes, there was comedy, which I'd never heard in song, but yeah, it wasn't like I'm writing a comedy song. Comedy. No, no, it like, wasn't a novelty you know, song. Like even that yeah, like, yeah. unseen power of the picket fence is a song about REM who at the time were probably the biggest they'd ever been. And he's writing a song about their early days, about how they're the stuff you, the stuff that we didn't, the the masses didn't know about was actually the cool REM. So they're like, well, a, I, I always remember, like, you know, when it's like, you know, Range Life, where he's taking the piss yeah. out of the um, Smashing, Smashing Pumpkins, Pumpkins, Stone Temple and, Pilots, and yeah. I, I loved Smashing Pumpkins growing up, but like, I could still laugh at them. You know, I can't imagine <laughs> Billy Corgan would have found it particularly amusing, but um, he did not. I dug it. He did not. And so, 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 so what payment? And so then obviously I went out on a limb and I thought, Oh, let me check out this album called the natural bridge by David, uh, by the silver Jukes. Yeah. And again, that was just utterly transformative. And, um, and then I, you know, bought starlight Walker and basically just, so, so what pavement and, David Berman stuff kind of did for me at this time. So I wasn't working in comedy yet at that time, but all this, it made me realize, oh shit, there's, um, I can talk about my own landscape, like in the documentaries and stuff I write. Yeah. Like I can, I can do suburban shit. I grew up in a suburb and I connected with these guys who want, you know, as, as much as Kurt was sort of anti, uh, you know, anti-showman sort of posturing. He clearly had the most incredible charisma and was a rock showman, yeah. I believe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but yeah, and then you have these guys, Pavement, and they just look like fucking guys. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It literally, yeah. They just look like men. Yeah. You know what I mean? Wearing their clothes and then going on a stage wearing their men clothes. No pretense. performing. Yeah. No pretense. And that really resonated with me. And the stuff they were talking about, that suburban feel, I thought, oh yeah. And, and obviously David Berman with his you know, the focus on the, the the small details and, you know, the the sort of wonder within the mundane, it sort of made me, you know, connect saying, yeah, I can, that's kind of what I want to do anyway. But I realised, oh, it's valid. You are allowed to do that. Yeah. And it helped. so when I made these little documentaries, these authored little documentaries, there's kind of a sort of almost simmering, like, you know, they're looking for the glory, you know, in the mundane. I remember at the first, again, it probably sounds pretentious, but I remember my, I'd write these documentaries, but my secret goal in them was to try and find a uh, sort of transcendent language for atheists. And so I'd be <laughs> trying to, um, in my documentary, no one would know that, they'd just be watching them. But the, but the way I would try and inject the similar feeling was like, I want to create reverie just in a secular way, you know, the beauty yeah. of wonder, which, there and stuff and and that was i guess david berman and probably modern pavement but yeah it sort of helps and yeah you can do that kind of shit um yeah was the fact that uh you're sorry this is maybe too personal but was the fact that david i mean david called this project silver jews was the fact that he was jewish did that resonate with you as well in a in a hopeful way as yourself you're a pra- you're a practicing jew i believe as well yes i'm not i'm not, pra- I'm not practicing okay no, but um i um I'll do like Yom Kippur and stuff and Pesach dinner, like on the festivals and things. I'll fast and that, but I'm not like, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't wear Kippur or anything. Um, I, I, I never felt that his stuff particularly rare, other than the name. It wasn't particularly... Um, no, it's the name mostly, I would say, yeah. Oh, the name mostly. To be honest, I think it was like, even if he'd been called, if they'd been called the silver, you know, egg shits, 
I would have gone and bought their album off the back of okay. Uh, okay. the pavement connection anyway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, yeah. But so, and so then what I made this film, I mentioned the guy, the film about the guy in his underpants who walked around. Yeah. Edgeware. Yeah. And it was just like, I had a thousand pounds. I bought a camera at the time. It would have been probably about a grand the camera costs. And so I'm doing it all lo-fi. Yeah. And they taught me, they gave me permission to almost do be lo-fi, like this ramshackle pavement aesthetic. Yeah. Um, thought, yeah, I can fucking do this. And then that, that colliding with everything that I'd ingested from the ethos Nirvana would put forward and the idea of black flag, where you just fucking, you're not waiting for permission to be to proceed in your creativity or career like i've always found people have literally always waited for someone high, high up to a, a gatekeeper to say okay yes you may make a film yeah i just went out and made them without waiting for permission and that helped me get on but um what was i babbling about completely gone again you were talking about the documentary you made and oh, were you talking so about the yeah, music I out, here? Or, yeah. yeah no i re- i wanted to end the out like because I was editing it and I I've always loved editing stuff with music yeah and I, I the ending of the film uses the um I'm gonna love the hell out of you yeah silver juice you know, song yeah yeah so it's on like just an EP or something isn't it yeah it's a um, single I believe yeah yeah on a single yeah so but so I had to reach out I think I got in touch I emailed someone up who would have with them was it domino or was it someone else um, the drag city would have had yeah sure it might drag have, city yeah drag city yeah and they and David Berman sort of wrote back saying, "Yeah, it's fine. You can use it." And I had no money to offer, and he said, "That's fine." So that was pretty cool. Yeah, is that um, your only interaction with him, or was that your only interaction with him? No, I think I wrote to him to thank him, and he sent me a postcard back. And um, yeah, it's just sent a little. Post. I don't think I've got it anymore. I mean, I think I met him once. No, I met him twice actually. I met him once at a gig in London. He played. So when they were t- had him and he was being supported by those crazy Israeli guys, Monotonics. Right. Um, they were fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like he literally climbed up onto, he literally jumped off the, he kind of, he did a, a John Wilkes booth, like who tried to kill, was that the guy that killed Abraham Lincoln? It was the guy who shot Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So like the guy from Monotonics literally climbed up into the rafters of the theater and then just jumped off it like John Wilkes booth. Oh my God. Um, yeah, yeah, but he just landed on people, so he was fine. Yeah. Um, wow. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so you interacted with David there? and that was, Yeah, I literally just sort of, yeah, I said, like, so, you yeah. know, it's like it's difficult because I'm just a no one. You don't want to, like, force yourself on people or act too overexcited in their presence. There's, retrospectively, I, I remember hearing him, like, in the years where he kind of disappeared, I just, part of me thinks, oh, I could have, you know, maybe I could have just written to him. Why why would he have minded me saying, hey, man, just wanted to say blah, blah, blah. Well, that's why why he reached out to me, I think, is that I had asked various mutual friends. Like, we'd spoken a couple times before that, but, uh, yeah, I had just asked about him enough on this show and over emails to people that he caught wind of it and... He got my email and he reached out to me and then we became, you know, these these pen pals, which is, I mean, that's a day I never forget because he was just a huge influence and inspiration for me from when I was a teenager. So, yeah, no, I love, yeah. I love, and I, and I think it was around maybe that time that you connected with me a little bit too. And I like that David, David for me is a perpetual gift giver, I feel like he my love of him and and his appreciation of me has connected me with people like you and and other people cool. and i really uh i love him even and more that's cuz i reached out to you after listening to the podcast didn't i i think so Did i mean i know i, I noticed remember. yeah i noticed also on twitter i had written a nice uh, thing about uh i think i named who is america the best thing of com- in comedy of the year uh for exclaim magazine here in canada and then i noticed you followed me on twitter and I was like, who is who is Lee Kern? And then I looked you up and I was like, oh, I mean, I assume that might have been part of it, too. I don't know. But I think you appreciated that. I I think I'm putting words in your mouth. I gather you appreciated that. I appreciated David. And I think you also maybe saw 
the fact that I don't know if you read that or, or were aware that I wrote about who is America, but I wondered if you're like, oh, he got the show. He also got the show a little yeah, bit. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. A lot of appreciation all around. Yeah, I feel but, like we, we're connected a little bit. And we feel, I feel like we have a lot of the same interest. Uh, and I, I, I mean, obviously, I hope after an hour of chatting, you feel that way a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I'm done with you. I'm like, you're dead to me now. You know what I mean? It's, it's over, over and done. But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, I like. Yeah, so like I just like I when saw- culture brings people together. That's like part of why I do what I do. I like to... And I feel like maybe as much as some of the stuff you do is is difficult for some, I think it's a, it's a nice showcase of, uh, of, of humanity in, in another way. And I think it's galvanizing. Would you agree? Yeah, no, well, thank you very much. But I, I think, I mean, the only reason, I know you're primarily a music podcast and I know we've only touched upon the music, but I think, um, you know, so I can't, your listeners, I can't give them this value of being some famous musician or what have you. I'm just, they'll just think, well, who's this? Just some guy is written, <laughs> but maybe there's a small story in there about, in a very, very genuine way, the sort of cross pollination and the inspiration and the spiritual flow between music feeding into other arts and creative people. Where, like, all the music I've cited very briefly, truly, truly has like empowered how I've gone about my career yeah. and just getting on doing stuff. Like it, like it really emphatically has. It's not even a, a question. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to, in my own small way, it's like almost you want these artists to to know, you know, you know, you guys, you don't just influence other musicians. You know, there's great people that go away and you become almost like a your ideology behind what you do can inspire, you know, I mean, one's approach to how they fight for their space and fight for their career. Yeah. Obviously, that's what this stuff's done. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a similar spirit to... Uh, the expression you're talking about, like there's there's certain people who make music and certain people who make comedy and certain people who write books and whatever they do, it is weirdly coming from the same spirit of empowerment and and trying to do something interesting and and good and unique, uh, something that hasn't been done before, and I feel like you're in that realm if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Lee. You're welcome. So, uh, you... Oh, wait, am I feeling the rhythm that you're winding this up, or did you want to talk more? Well, I'm no. trying to gauge your rhythm. <laughs> I I thought I was winding things down a little bit, yeah. I felt that it was a winding down, like, um, Is that soliloquy okay? you is were that, giving that. I, I was, no, it's, abso- it's absolutely fine. I just, well, I was thinking, okay, yeah, I was, I was thinking, yeah, this is the wind down soliloquy. I just wanted to know if I was correct. And you, I was. You're absolutely, you're an astute observer of human behavior and, uh, yeah. and, and, and the way people uh, behave uh, generally. Yeah, I think you're, you're on to me a little bit. You've, you've called me out. I, I hope that's okay. I'm just conscious of, want, of my. Oh, f- and the frogs as well. They were a big influence. Oh, the, the frogs? frogs. The band, just the chuck frogs. Just that in there. Okay. Yeah, just I, chuck I, that in I, there and then we can move on. We, you and I can always talk again. Uh, the next time you've got something out okay. there, I don't. I this doesn't have to be the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed <laughs> yes. it. Like, I mean, I feel like we have a. It's a nice thing we have here, and I think I'd like to I pursue it again. But in the interest of, okay, here's the thing, Lee. When I do these Done. interviews, my family is sequestered. They 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 try to give me some space, and I feel it's badly. Okay. It's a, as we're speaking, it's a school day, it's a work day. I'm just yeah. trying to be courteous yeah, to them. Miserable for them. Yeah, well, miserable. I just want them to be able to make as much noise as they want. Let them be free. Let them Let them be free, know, absolutely. New day of opportunity. Before we go, and I, I I know that there's it's coming out, what is your role in Borat 2 exactly? What did you do this time? So I'm a, so I'm a credited screenwriter, um, which means I wrote it uh, with the other screenwriters. And I'm also accredited associate producer, which means I sort of had a role in some of the more uh, nuts and bolts production of it, as well as uh, sort of production input in terms of creative creative choices. Okay. So okay. that's that was my role in it. Okay. So we'll all get a sense of it when it comes out. You feel like it's a necessary thing for us to be experiencing, particularly Americans. I'm not American. You're not American. But do you yeah. think Americans, is this for Americans at the at the moment? I, I, I hope it's for everyone who enjoys it. I'll be honest with you. And again, this sounds really callous and it's not a comment on the film. I can't be bothered to watch it. Oh, you have Okay. No, I, I haven't watched it and I probably won't, literally because I don't really watch the stuff I make. 
And again, honestly, this sounds like really negative, but I swear it's positive. I literally just work. I, I think the success, you know, so I come, you know, I think to be successful, if you're making a living, making a living in whatever capacity means you're a success, a success story. Yeah. And so I just feel like for me, making a living, that is my success. And then I can enjoy the things I actually enjoy in life, which is, which are things I like more than show business. Right. You know? so, okay. And, um, so I don't really dwell on the stuff I've done or, or watch it, but let me know if it's good <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's enjoyable. Let, I'll let you know for sure. So Lee, if people want to learn more about you and your comedy, uh, where would you want to send them, uh, you know, on Twitter? Or, as I said, you and I have a Twitter connection. I know you have a nice website with lots of your stuff. Where would you want to send them? I guess I guess follow me on Twitter. It's at Lee Kern, L-E-E-K-E-R-N 13. That's okay. the numerical number 13. So Lee Kern 13, follow me there. And then, you know, I've got a website with their stuff up there. If you want to see a bit, it's got leekerner.org. And now I've got Vimeo somewhere. I probably should put a link to there, but the Vimeo, my Vimeo is probably the best place to see loads and loads of different bits and pieces I've made. You can have a browse around there. Yeah, and, you've got um, a bunch of videos up on your website under video, so I think, <laughs> and they're yeah. all Vimeo clips, I believe. So yeah, people can, okay. yeah, people can check. Am I telling you something about your website you didn't even know? No, I was actually right the other day. I was thinking like, what kind of sick psychopath actually updates their website? <laughs> you know, like what kind of deranged <laughs> lunatic goes on and, and and updates their website with information about themselves? You've got to be a fucking like head case to do that. Okay, listen to um, me here. I have to update my site. Every- no, you've got to because you've got a product that's coming out every with week. Regularity. Every so, yeah, every you- couple of days, I got to do something to it. It's true, but you're right. I have a section of like writing. And I've never updated. I always forget to put the articles that I've written up. I just, I. It's, you'd be insane if you did that. Like, I know. Literally, I, I'd want you'd be. I'd want people keeping an eye on you. You'd, be, you'd got to be a serial killer or something <laughs> if you actually did that. What kind of cold-blooded bastard would update sort of bits of their resume on their website? You've got to be stone cold dark uh, yeah, to do that. <laughs> all right, all right. I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. All right. Well, we'll tell people nonetheless. People should go to your website because there's lots of good stuff there and follow you on Twitter. And uh, Lee, this was really fun. And I appreciate nice. uh, I appreciate you reaching out to, and, uh, to me over the years. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this and I hope we talk again soon and best of luck Lovely with everything. Stay in touch. All right. And be well. Hello to all your, your listeners. God bless you all. Have a lovely, lovely pandemic. <laughs> Very special thanks to Lee Kern for being on this, the 574th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available on, well, everywhere. Everywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, uh, Stitcher, all the things. Everything, it's on all uh, all of the podcast things. Uh, But if you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me, and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter. It might be about monthly. I think it's going to be a monthly newsletter now. I just did one. I haven't done one in a while. I don't see why I would do it more than monthly. You don't need to hear from me this much. I'm already putting out all these episodes. What more do you want from me? Anyway, if you want to learn about all these things, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative. Or follow me directly at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. Uh, if you pledge uh, $6 or more a month, you get access to exclusive content, and I, I pull stuff from my audio archives of interviews I've done in the past, and then I put them up. And so I'm not going to do that this month because there's so many episodes of the regular show that I don't... I, do you really want... I guess I'm supposed to do it. I might do it. I have my eye on a Harmony Korean thing I did some years ago that it became kind of infamous. Anyway, I might put that up. But anyway, thank you for your support. If you want to support the show, it doesn't have to be six bucks. It could be less than that. It could be more than that. If you want to support the show and make sure it keeps going, patreon.com slash creative control. Thanks again to live at masseyhall.com where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists. Also, for their in-kind support, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. Uh, Thanks also to my dear friend and musical mastermind, Jim Guthrie. Uh, He lets me use some music on the show, and uh, his music is all great. He's very prolific as well. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. Hey, I bet if you're a friend of Lee's, 
and you're into uh, filmmaking, Jim scores movies. I don't know that he's looking for work. He's usually way too busy, but still, jimguthrie.org. He does it all. He scores things. He's great. And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Lee. And uh, if you liked what you heard, there's uh, obviously 573 episodes in the back catalog that you could go check out. And uh, also, please, 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 please subscribe to the podcast and or follow it, whatever your uh, you know platform asks you to do to keep tabs on it. That helps spread the word about it somehow, algorithms and whatnot. So please consider doing that. And also, you'll just be in touch. You'll know what's going on on the show. Okay, I think I've said enough. I will talk to you extremely soon. There's another episode coming. Before you know it, there's going to be another one of these. I hope you enjoy that one too. Bye for now. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.